Hey, it's Larry. Uh, Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Real quick, before we get into this episode, I had such an amazing, eye-opening, life-changing experience at the World Parkinson Congress in Kyoto that I want others to have that opportunity, too. So Becca Miller and I and 24 of our PD community friends have launched a year-long WPC Travel Grant Fundraiser. We're each doing a two-week Facebook fundraiser. Mine's underway right now because my birthday's January 9th. All the money raised will be used to help offset travel costs so more people with young-onset Parkinson's can attend the next WPC in Barcelona in 2022. You can search out details on the When Life Gives You Parkinson's Facebook page or donate directly to the WPC website. Go to wpc2022.org slash yopdfund. If you or your business would like to supply matching funds... Hey, good on you. Email me at parkinsonspot at curiouscast.ca. And now, on with the show. Hi, my name is Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. There's no cure yet. This is when life gives you Parkinson's. Joining me on this journey is producer and reporter Nikki Redmire. I'm intrigued, Larry. You said that there's no cure yet. As if you know something that we don't know. (laughs) I have no big announcements regarding a cure for Parkinson's (laughs) here today, I'm afraid. Uh, But there are a lot of people who have dedicated their lives to unraveling the mysteries of Parkinson's disease. Today's episode is at the heart of why I was inspired to do this podcast in the first place. I was listening to a neurologist on a podcast, Dr. Ray Dorsey from the University of Rochester, and he said, if people with Parkinson's don't start telling their stories... We'll never raise awareness of the disease high enough to raise enough money to do enough research to find a cure. So I was inspired to share my story, which I'm doing, but that's only part of the equation. The other part, raise enough money to do enough research, intrigues me. Right. So until you become immersed in this community uh, or the community like Parkinson's, you really don't think about the intrinsic nature of donors and researchers and those people who volunteer to participate in research. Recently, I was at the Center for Brain Health at UBC for a scientific review. Researchers were updating donors from the Pacific Parkinson's Research Institute on the studies that their monies were helping to directly finance. Neurologist Silky Cresswell, who's involved in microbiome research, got health. She was on the extra dosage last week. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she reinforced the importance of doing research. So research around Parkinson's is crucial because without it, you will never have a treatment and we will not know what to do and as you know despite research on Parkinson's we still don't quite know what causes it for the most part there are certain exceptions for that if you have a specific genetic mutation but for the most part we are still looking at what is happening and so our research goals are to understand why Parkinson's develops in the first place how it progresses are there different subtypes different kinds of Parkinson's which they're very likely are and do these people need to be treated differently and how do I recognize those subtypes and then of course in the the short term how do I treat certain symptoms that are already in existence and what can I do to prevent them without research we'll never find the answer to any of those questions and therefore it is crucial and without it we'll never move forward. Dr. Matt Ferrer, the geneticist who's dedicated his life to finding the genes that contribute to the cause and onset of Parkinson's. Really cool guy. Yes. He was one of a handful of researchers who explained to me how important the money raised at the walks and the auctions and the porridge breakfasts and the charity concerts really is to their work. It wouldn't happen without it. Um, Research, unfortunately, wouldn't 
happen, I don't think. Um, certainly not at the pace it's going um, without philanthropic dollars, uh, without people, uh, basically the general public, providing funds. And the co-director of the center, Dr. A. John Stossel, explained the value of both volunteers for studies and the donors who help fund these projects. Doing this work depends on generosity in many forms. One form of generosity is simply the interest and willingness to participate in research studies. Because many of the people who do that, somebody came up to me after the session this morning and said, sign me up, doesn't matter what it is, sign me up. I want to be part of it. And he understands full well that there's not going to be direct benefit to him as a result of participation. But he wants to be part of the solution. And in fact, there is benefit to him simply by virtue of participating because people, there's plenty of evidence to show that people who are heavily engaged uh, in understanding their disease and contributing to better understanding of their disease and who participate in research studies actually do better than people who take the opposite, uh, more sequestered view. But of course, the other form of generosity is, is financial. These are not necessarily mutually exclusive, of course, but um, as I've indicated, the work of the center has for many years depended on the generosity of those donors. I'm not sure people realize just how critical that is. I simply say thank you because that support has been incredibly important for keeping us going and allowing us to take on new directions. Full disclosure, Nikki, I was uh, recently appointed to the board of the Pacific Parkinson's Research Institute. Oh, very uh, good. Yes, I'm, I'm very happy about that. Uh, but before I joined the board, I attended many fundraisers benefiting different Parkinson's organizations. I met the neurologists doing the research at these events and ended up volunteering myself to be studied. So I've met some truly, truly amazing people along the way. And now you get to meet them, too. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. So we'll start with the fundraiser, because that's how I got involved. I've, I've been invited to speak and attend many different events the past year. Hey, it's Larry. I'm here at another fundraiser. It's Shake, Shake, Shake with Emily Chambers. This is pretty cool. And here we are at a fundraiser called Porridge for Parkinson's. Who here has Parkinson's? Raise your hands if you have Parkinson's. We've got a lot of people here have Parkinson's. You can't tell by looking at somebody if they have Parkinson's. Parkinson's is different for every individual. Hello, and welcome everybody to the Parkinson's Superwalk. Woo! What an exciting day, a beautiful day, right? You're going to meet a lot of people here tonight who have Parkinson's, who, who are losing their voice quickly. And as long as I have my voice, I'm going to tell my story. Larry, you were staying really busy this past yeah. year. <laughs> That's I'm, a lot of stuff. Kind of crazy, looking back. It's, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a community of people, and it's fun to go to these things and see, see some of the same people, and you develop friendships and yeah. camaraderie, and it's, it, it is truly a community. The first clip uh, there in the montage we heard, uh, I was at Shake, Shake, Shake. Right. And that was created by singer-songwriter Emily Chambers. We introduced her in the first episode. That's right. I remember her dad has Parkinson's. Right. And Emily and her sister throw a benefit concert each year. People want to do something for family and friends who have Parkinson's. And there's not a lot you can do, really. For Emily, throwing a concert to raise funds was a no-brainer because performing is what she does, and it's what she knows how to do. Yeah, it makes you feel like I've accomplished something. 
that we've accomplished something as a family. And I think it sets like an awareness to people that there's, you know, there's more out there than just cancer and that there are people that are only an arm's length away from us that are dealing with these diseases and how cool that we can get back in a fun way. And while it's fun, Nikki, be forewarned before organizing your own fundraiser, it is a huge <laughs> job. Emily and I talked quite a bit backstage that night of Shake, 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 and she really opened up. In the last sort of couple years, it, cognitively, it's gotten a little bit more hard. Like, he gets very confused, and he wants to participate in the conversation, but sometimes what he's saying, like, doesn't make all that much sense, and we all, like, try and help him. It's also really hard to get a word in around, like, me and my sister and my mom edgewise, so we all get really quiet when he talks and tries to listen, and that probably makes him feel pressured, but... He's still there, like Dad will say hilarious things every once in a while off the cuff, and you're like, oh, there he is. But, um, he's fading. How does that make you feel? It's really hard, especially because I just moved away um, to Nashville, and seeing him and my mom, it's really hard, yeah, for sure. My mom is like, you know, just seeing my mom is such a young whatever she I want to say she's like 50 something but I think she's like 63 <laughs> but she's so young she's so young hearted and she's so vivacious and um, it's hard to see her you know be so worried and like have to take care of and see like she lost her brother Dick to dementia and, and she kind of watched, watched him fade away and that's kind of what she feels like is going on with her partner like they've been married for 43 years so that, that no one's going anywhere. They know each other inside out. But yeah, it's definitely emotional. And I, yeah, I feel guilty for not being here. And it's just stuff that you gotta compartmentalize and talk about. And I'm not gonna not live my life. And they're not gonna not live their lives. And that's kind of scary to hear. Yeah. Because yeah, you, you, you don't want to think about the future. And, you know, but when you, when you hear stories about how people are fading, you're like, oh, I don't want to fade. Yeah, you don't want to think about yourself in their shoes, in that no. position. No. And Parkinson's is different for everyone I know, but it's, it's hard not to look at the people who've had it for a while and begin to think about, oh, is that going to be what I'm going to be like? Yeah. And will your son have a similar story then to Emily's? Right. And I shared these thoughts with Emily that you know it leads me to worry about my family. I've not had it for 17 years or yeah. like your dad has, but that's what I think of. I think of my wife and I think of my kid. And I'm like, I, I feel bad because I don't, I don't know what the future holds for that, for me. Yeah. So I don't know what the future holds for them. And yeah. I don't want to hold them back. Yeah. I think that you just got to like shut up. And <laughs> I think my biggest thing is that I wish my dad did more for his health. I wish that he he does everything that he can, especially at this stage. But I wish that, like, years ago he had, like, done the stupid yoga that he didn't want to do and, like, do the stretches in the morning and, like, stop eating gluten and dairy and just try everything. Try everything. Because you don't know. And, and I think he very much was like, this is what's going to happen and I'm going to live my best life the way that I know how to and, like... You know, try and introduce my dad into like, what if we cut bread out? He's oh. like, no, that's my one I left. just yeah. did on a year's worth of bread out there. Cobbs, that's a good one. That's a good one. But 
for somebody that like I, I research health, especially like yeah, it's gut. It's the gut is matters. The gut is like your. I think it's your first. I think it's your first brain, but they say it's your second brain. But I would like to see him have done more. Not saying that he doesn't do everything that he can, but as you, I, I would like to see, and I'm sure your family would just like to see, like try every avenue, because there, as much as we still don't know about it, there are lots of trials. There's lots of things. You know that we can try, and my dad actually he donates himself. He offers himself to UBC testing yeah. every year, and so um, you know, there's yeah. Hopefully, we always hope that things come out of of that, and you know, he uses his body for science for sure. But yeah, it's frustrating for my mom to be like, "You say that you feel better when you stretch in the morning, but you literally won't stretch in the morning unless I'm stretching beside you, and I can only do so much." But then she also understands that there are some mornings that he's like, if I stretch, I might not be able to do anything else today. So, you know, it's a give and take. But I don't think his mind was there 15 years ago that he was like, this might get here and I should maybe try this. And, you know, so I hold nothing against him. But as advice to you, yeah, I would. I would try every diet. I would try everything that makes you feel better. Because you don't have to just, like like Tanya said, we've been diagnosed, it's not a death sentence. You know? No. There are people that are living totally different lives with the same diseases. And another thing to remember is that Parkinson's is such a different beast for everybody. My dad's experience might be nothing towards yours. That makes sense. I imagine that there is so many different emotions that a person with Parkinson's goes through, including emotions of guilt. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, even people with Parkinson's are like, uh, what did I do to bring this upon myself? Right. (laughs) Uh, That's when you go see the counselor. Yeah. (laughs) That nice self-destructive train of thought that's not helpful whatsoever. Yes, of course. Um, I also want to introduce you to Michael Chung. He's 28 years old. His dad has Parkinson's. He was 45 when he was diagnosed and Michael was 11 years old. Remember, I was 45 when I was diagnosed, and my son Henry was just eight years old. Oh, interesting. So you must have felt that his story reflected your own in some ways. Well, yeah, it's kind of similar. It's like, oh, so I wonder what advice he would have for my son. Mm. You you sort of start talking like that. Michael's parents um, chose not to tell him about the diagnosis for several years. Interesting. Which is a choice. Yeah, sure, yeah. (laughs) Uh, They didn't discuss it in the home, and they didn't share it with others. I'm an only child. I grew up next to my cousin who's a year older than me, and we've lived next to each other basically our whole lives, and he's an only child as well, so I see him as basically my bigger brother or my older brother, but um, I've never once spoke to anybody about this. You didn't even speak to him about it? No, no, nobody, because for me, every time I spoke about it, it kind of, it made me very uncomfortable to talk about it, so it was something that I I tried to just, I didn't, I didn't try to hide or ignore, I just tried to... Um, focus on the positives more so than than to, like I've, I always find that if I try to talk to somebody about the uh, about it like there's no real one there's no cure for it there's no there's no cure for the disease so it's not like if the more people I talk to eventually somebody will be like oh have you tried this right have you tried honey or whatever um, so I, I, I just realized at that point I was fine with it with myself I was fine I was frustrated but 
um, there was really nothing I could do. So I didn't see there being a positive to talking to anybody about it. Last year, Michael launched a website to help raise funds for Parkinson's called tparky.com. It's an online business. So tparky.com, T-E-A-P-A-R-K-Y.com. And I sell loose leaf tea and matcha as well as apparel, um, t-shirts and, and hoodies and tank tops that have the hashtag BeatParky on it. So B-E-A-T-P-A-R-K-Y. So essentially, I just created that hashtag BeatParky as a way to raise awareness and money with the mantra to essentially one day defeat Parkinson's disease by finding a cure or finding a way to be able to um, live your full entire life with it. Maybe even more importantly, he wrote and shared his family's Parkinson's story finally on tparky.com. It felt it felt relief, actually. It felt like I was taking something off my shoulder, weight off my shoulder that I've been trying to hide for the longest time. Uh, but there was also nervousness in that I knew eventually I had to post this and I didn't know how other people would take it. But I mean, it was basically the, the best thing I've ever done. Why? Why? Because... Um, because of all the good it's done, actually, the, the amount of people that have come by and and talked about, and shared their own story and said that they've wanted to do something um, for they've got a family member or they've got a close personal friend or somebody that they knew um, their grandmother passed away from, whether it be cancer, or has some type of specific illness or disease, and they want to do the same thing. And then they share their story with me. And then you realize it's it's very freeing to share your story. And you realize everybody deals with something too and and how you um how you basically tackle it determines how you live your life so that's why it was um it was very freeing for me and that's why i was very thankful to tell my story it's it's changed the trajectory of my life and kind of where my life is going how'd your dad react um so i never actually discussed this with my dad before (laughs) i did it (laughs) i just figured I'm going to regret this for the rest of my life if I don't do it, at least while he's still alive and able to see what's going to come of it. Um, but he was very, he's been very supportive. Uh, he didn't have much to say. He was very proud and he was just very supportive. So, Nikki, fundraising can be cathartic. Yeah. It can be healing, uh, energizing, mm-hmm. in addition to being helpful in the hunt for a Parkinson's cure. The first fundraiser I went to was Porridge for Parkinson's. As you might expect, this was a breakfast event. I guessed it was breakfast, yes. <laughs> porridge. <laughs> right? They served porridge. Yeah. And there was all sorts of accoutrement. There was, you, know, you get the brown sugar and you get the nuts and uh, and there's some bourbon. Can we talk about your use <laughs> of the term accoutrement for a second? Very impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it was a beautiful sunny day uh, in the backyard of a beautiful home in West Vancouver. And this is actually where I first met Dr. Ferrer, the gene hunter. Uh, so I tried to chat up his researchers, uh, Emil and Jesse. We're looking at the, one of our latest gene discoveries in Parkinson's disease. So this here is a mutation in RUB32. So DNA JC12 is a... So at this stage, Nikki, I'm lost. DNA. They're talking no, a different kidding. language. Yeah. So I got like genes and proteins, cells, mutations. I'm like, okay, I'm a smart guy, but, but like, like, I, you've, you've left me behind here. So I kept asking questions, trying to unlock the mystery of Parkinson's and maybe my Parkinson's. Uh, here I am with Jesse Fox. We found this uh, mutation. We found one in a Saskatchewan family and a second in two affected siblings in an Italian family. Like you found it in three families, or two families, three people? Yes, so this particular mutation is incredibly rare. 
as Matt alluded to earlier, every one of these mutations, every one of these families helps. Uh, it adds a piece of the puzzle, a piece to our understanding. So um, we basically, our goal is to understand every part of the disease and every gene and every protein that's going to uh, contribute or otherwise be associated with Parkinsonism. Um, so even these rare mutations like this one here are just imperative to our understanding. Why do you do this? It's addicting, almost. It, this, uh, this need for developing this knowledge and this understanding and just seeing where we're going with this uh, neuroscience research. Um, this is, in my opinion, probably biased, but one of the most exciting avenues of any scientific uh, research. I feel like we're going to make the most uh, progress, most leaps forward here, and so I want to be at the forefront of it. What does it do for you at an event like this where you get to meet people with Parkinson's, the people that you're trying to help? It opens uh, my eyes to everything. Obviously, as researchers, they kind of keep us behind glass doors, right? Keep us locked <laughs> up. Um, so, no, it's great to be able to talk to people. Um, and obviously, almost every single person um, who either has an affected friend, family member, or who is affected is extremely grateful for the work that we do. Um, so it's just so rewarding to be able to talk to people and show them my work and show them our work collectively as a team and say, you know, we're at the forefront doing this. We want to understand it better, and ultimately we want to cure it, right? Everybody says it. We want to cure it. We want to cure it. We want to cure it. <laughs> yep. How realistic is that in the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Um, it's a hard question to like, answer, like, really. Is it going to get cured in my lifetime, or have I got this forever? Yeah, it's not out of the question to think that particular um, you know, mutations, particular avenues of this disease could be cured and will be cured. Uh, Matt was talking about the synuclein drugs are already in stage two. I don't think the LERC2 are uh, far behind. So, yes, for the uh, particular personalized medicine route, I think there will be cures. So you, you almost, it's not curing Parkinson's, it's curing everyone's individual Parkinson's. I think that's uh, probably pretty safe to say. Yeah, it's. Yeah, it's so you gotta, I don't know if there's going to be a. Like, like, there's not one cure, like right? one pill that we can all take and it's going to so affect far, us the no. same. <laughs> so far, no. And if there is, that's definitely what we're going to work towards. But that's uh, why finding. we need research, right? That is yes. We need to understand what's common, what's what's connected between all these individual and uh, seemingly so different cases. Ah, uh, okay, Larry. I get it now. It is. Amazing how closely tied fundraising and research really, really mm -hmm. is. You know, listening to those researchers actually sharing their results at a Parkinson's fundraiser to the people who are writing the checks. You know, that's that's really amazing. It's motivating. It is motivating. Sure. Yeah. I mean, when you see that, you're like, oh, this does make a difference. Right. This is how my money is helping. And it doesn't end there. Uh, several months later. I found myself actually in Dr. Ferrer's lab. Oh, interesting. So officially, he's the professor of medical genetics and molecular neuroscience at the Pacific Parkinson's Research Center at the University of British Columbia, which is a mouthful. How do you fit that on a business card? <laughs> I've always been, been an optimist. Every day I wake up happy and optimistic, and every night I go to bed depressed after the <laughs> But but, uh, um, but in the beginning, I, I thought it was... Um, I just thought I was in a brave and bold and perhaps rather stupid adventure to try and find genes for Parkinson's disease and thought that was totally, um, a lot of people told me I was totally naive to even bother trying. Um, I should do something more useful instead. Um, and then we found the first gene and then we found the second and the third and the fourth. 
I've heard you say that Parkinson's and, and the search for the cure is one of the great mysteries of the world. Yes, it's. Uh, I think why, did, why so? Because, uh, well, there's many reasons. Um, primarily because it's a, it's a sporadic condition. So people generally don't have an affected parent or relative with the same disease. And so therefore, many have said over many years, centuries actually, that the condition is, is sporadic. It's not heritable. There is no genetics in Parkinson's disease. Uh, despite that, we've now identified probably in the order of around 70 genes for the condition with mutations, differences if you like, um, from the reference um, in those 70 genes in patients with Parkinson's. And that's um, a tremendous breakthrough because it's leading to uh, advances in, in uh, not just diagnosis and prognosis, so working out, you know, basically knowing the information we can work out or predict how the disease may evolve in somebody. Uh, whether there'll be more cognitive problems or whether there'll be less, um, that type of thing. Um, but it also is, is leading to clinical trials, new clinical trials uh, for the disease. So new medications that are directly targeted to the underlying molecular cause. And that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, when will you know you're done? I don't think I'll ever be done. I think I'll be dead before I'm done. But um, <laughs> it's a lot of work. So... Um, that sounds very negative, <laughs> but, but it's not. <clears throat> the human genome was only sequenced in its entirety 17 years ago, right? It's page one of Genesis, and we've got uh, the rest of the book to go, right? So it's, um, it's a, an amazing journey of exploration at a molecular level to try and figure out what these genes are, how they influence disease, how they work together in concert and in a brain to make a brain function, and how uh, when there's a mutation, that process goes awry and, and causes Parkinson's disease. And then, how to fix it. That's the most important, right? This is really painstakingly detailed work, Nikki. It's like a worldwide game of where's Waldo, only it's where's Parky. Is it fair to say that you're like the Indiana Jones of gene hunters? That's a very romantic way of putting it, but I think, it, but I think it's, uh, yes, probably so. And so with each discovery, is there like a, is it like winning the Super Bowl every time you find another gene? <clears throat> well, the first one was really phenomenal, right? <laughs> the first one was, was absolutely incredible. Uh, the second one was, it blew me away because, because of the frequency. We're talking tens, if not hundreds of thousands of patients with the same mutation. It's incredible um the third one uh each one is amazing each one is amazing because it's a it's a each one un, un, unfolds if you like a, a story around human migration and uh and populations around the world and, br and brings that to to the fore to, to the to the present day and it's through uh, the generosity of patients and families and and through their disease and getting them coming, bringing them together, basically, to identify the single cause that in, in those particular patients. Larry, how did you end up visiting Dr. Farrer? So I volunteered to donate my DNA to his research. Mm. While I was there, I saw Jesse and Emil from the Porridge event. Right. And Dr. Farrer guided me through his office and down the hall and around the corners. Today is the day I'm going to donate my DNA to his research. Today, we're going to ask you um, for some body fluids, uh, some mouthwash, uh, so it's saliva, and we're going to take uh, some of the cells from your cheek 
uh, so basically buccal cells, buccal cells from your teeth, and isolate DNA uh, from them. Uh, this involves you basically just swilling some mouthwash around your mouth for 40 seconds, scraping your tongue against your teeth and against the side of your cheek so you get some cells in there, spinning it back into the tube, that's it. We spin that material down, we extract out the DNA, the deoxyribonucleic acid, we shred it into a billion tiny fragments, and we sequence each of those fragments. And by sequencing, I mean we identify the precise order, if you like, of nucleotides. We take all that information and using computers align it to a reference human genome and uh, basically look for differences between your genome and the reference genome to try and identify one specific difference that may be causal for your disease. What do we think we might find out or what do we what, what's like like is there is there anything I can learn from this to help me or is this just helping the bigger cause which is fine too um, it's very hard uh, to have a crystal ball and and uh, but I would like to uh, our objective is to predict and prevent right so um, in terms of your data um, with luck, we will identify the genetic cause of your condition. So there are some genes for early onset Parkinson's disease that have already been described. Um, two in particular I mentioned is Parkin and Pink One, and they explain probably something order in the order of 15 to 20 percent of patients with early onset Parkinson's disease. So um, it may be that you have uh, a mutation, well actually two mutations in this case. Um, in in, the, in those one or, or one of those genes, um, in terms of the bigger picture, uh, of course that's going to help if you can consent to allow your data to be shared in a de-identified way with other groups around the world and other neurologists around the world um, and other gene hunters like myself. Um, even if we don't find it. Parkin or Pink One mutations, we may find uh, another cause of Parkinson's disease, early onset Parkinson's disease, that's specific to you um, and maybe one or two other people in the world. All right. So last year we found uh, a new gene for Parkinson's disease in uh, an Italian family, and one uh, patient from Saskatchewan, sporadic <coughs> disease. It's, uh, it's a gene called DNAJC12, and it's absolutely unequivocal. We know that that causes Parkinson's disease, a very slowly progressive enzymatic form of Parkinson's. But it came about from just, just a couple of samples from different parts of the world. Okay, so you know, walk me through it. How are you feeling at this point? You know, uh, a, a little apprehensive, but I'm, I'm good. I'm, just, I'm still, I'm game. I want to help. You know, like you, you, people have to volunteer for these things. Like the, the, even if they get the money to do the study, if they don't have volunteers to be studied, yeah. what good's the money, right? So this is where people need to say, all right, I'll do it. Okay, so you're feeling you know, maybe slightly apprehensive, but ultimately brave and motivated. What happens next? Next, before the big rinse, he wanted to be sure I understood what I was doing. First of all, you're, you're providing consent that you're uh, allowing us to look at your genetic information. All right. And that has implications, not just for you, but also for other family members, because you inherited it, right? For your mum, for example, for your dad, mm-hmm. um, perhaps. But um, So that's one thing that you might be concerned about, um, or for your children. Um, you might be concerned about um, insurance and, uh, and the future, in terms of if we find something. You might be concerned about um, 
secondary findings or incidental findings. So we're going to look at your genome and uh, we're not looking uh, for anything else other than for genes that may cause Parkinson's disease. But the genome has a lot of secrets and they'll all be revealed. All right. So for instance, you've probably heard of uh, genes for breast cancer or genes for different types of tumours and things like that. If we see something like that, um, we have an obligation uh, medically to let you know about that because there are, um, in certain circumstances, ways of um, mitigating uh, those problems, right? Screening, for example. Okay, so that is a lot to take in. You know, how how are you feeling? Well, so, so now it's like it's, it's it's really like a ten page packet of all these things that um, <laughs> I'm, I'm signing off. I'm like, yeah. I'm just rinsing with mouthwash here, folks. <laughs> like, really, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, next, I fill out a survey about my family, my parents and sibling, birth years, death years, history of Parkinson's, none, extended family, ancestry. And the test itself was just really swishing scope for 40 seconds. And the hardest part was getting the plastic off the cap. <laughs> <laughs> so swirl around uh, your, your mouth for, for 40 seconds. I'm going to time it. Okay. And now we wait. Oh, that must have been a strange feeling to sit there and wait to find out what these results are, to learn more about yourself on this molecular level. Well, yeah, and you th- you think about it and you're like, oh, cool, I may find out if I have a genetic connection to Parkinson's, but then there's also that, what else are they going to find? Oh, because of course. Because when you sign that form, they're like, well, you know, if we find something else, we're going to tell you. And you're like, oh. Oh, do I want to know? know? Ignorance is sometimes <laughs> bliss. <laughs> so, there, you know, if, if you really don't want to know what's lurking around in your body, you probably wouldn't volunteer for a study like this. But there's probably other studies out there you might. Hmm. In every episode of When Life Gives You Parkinson's, Larry takes a moment to talk to his wife, Rebecca. Hi. <laughs> Is that how we're going to start today? <laughs> we were sitting there with your mouth open, unable to form a word there for a minute. Yeah. I don't think that was the Parkinson's. <laughs> you just didn't know what to say. This is a, a thick episode. It is. Can you imagine where we would be if folks like Dr. Ferrer and his team weren't as curious and committed to what they're doing? as they were, as they are. People told him not to do what he's doing. They told him it would be a waste of time. And it's not. Well, much like Indiana Jones. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because they told him not to go and that he was silly to look for the artifacts where they were. Um, He's forging ahead nonetheless. And creating a whole new path of research and possibility for people with Parkinson's disease, but just understanding the nervous system and the genetic connection to that, and that's big. All the all the researchers that I've met, they genuinely are passionate about helping people with Parkinson's. You think uh, that you're going to encounter this big brain. And what you really encounter is this really big heart. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that surprised me, but it really did. Mm -hmm. 
every researcher, because I've met a few of them at these at Porch for Parkinson's and other things that we've gone to, are genuinely like that. Mm-hmm. And they're genuinely curious. Like, this is a mystery we solve. And when we solve it, we help lots of people. Isn't that awesome? And that positivity and passion, enthusiasm is very present in every team that I've encountered. And how awesome is it to just play a tiny role in that you know, sort of ecosystem of raising money and helping it get to the right researchers to do their projects and then seeing the results of the research and how it applies to making people's lives better. I mean, it's just, it's really amazing. Well, and I think something that this episode brought home was how all of it is connected. So the community, the organizations that you benefit, that we benefit from, all the people that we've met, you're all kind of forging that path. You're all your own Indiana Jones, where you're, okay, well, how do we talk about this? How long can we talk about this? Right. What What's the best way to raise funds? What's the best way to use the research? The best way to support the community? The best way to help this person right here? The best way to contribute and, and participate in support groups and exercise classes? How can we help all of that, and how does that help us feel better and then also help society at large understand the disease better? Everybody can play a role. Whether you have a lot of money or not, it doesn't matter. Because, like, yeah, if you have money, great, we'll take it. It's, that's what the fundraising is for. But you could be a volunteer at a fundraiser and mm-hmm. you can sign people up and or right. so, you know, give, give your time. Or you can... you know, volunteer body as part of the research and be, if you don't have Parkinson's you can be part of the control group and if you can like there's so many things that people can do uh, along the way and so many people are needed to pull all these things off well and I think that that's one way that you can have a measure of control over how this disease goes for you in a way when you're what do we talk about is the biggest thing that that we deal with related to the disease as a family the uncertainty of it here's something where you see a cause and effect fundraising you ask people for money they give you money you hand the money over to a researcher that researcher is talking to you about what he's doing in a very open revealing way here's what we know here's what we don't know here's how far we have to go and you're you're the satisfaction of seeing that cause and effect when in your daily life there's so much that doesn't make sense. My foot is cramping up today, and it's never cramped up like this before, and I have no idea why, and I have no idea how to address that. Right. Nor does my wife or my son or any of my colleagues who are watching me walk funny again today. For an, a disease that's wrapped in uncertainty, there's something measurable there, and perhaps that's a way to kind of bring something concrete and satisfying to the situation. Yes, uh, it's a... Uh quite a beautiful ballet well that's a nice way to put it yeah very elegant yes and a very inelegant disease <laughs> a very crappy disease is inelegant a word i don't even know i don't know <laughs> i love you i love you too some final thoughts today from dr matt Ferrer. i asked if parkinson's was actually a person that you ran into on the street 
What would you say to it? You're being explosive, and I don't think I can say it on the radio. <laughs> Fuck off, basically. Um, yeah, sorry, that's terrible, isn't it? Don't, don't do that. But uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I tell it. Where, I tell it. Where, I mean, um, you know, I've worked with many, many uh, patients and families. I don't have Parkinson's disease in my family per se, um, but I've worked with so many people with it, and it's devastating, right? It's devastating. So I, I, I uh, want to do something about that. I want to prevent it. I want to halt its progression. Symptomatic, symptomatic benefit, levodopa, it's wonderful, right? Couldn't do without it. But it's not enough. It's not enough. And that's been the state of the art since the, the 50s. So something's got to change. My hope is that we'll eradicate Parkinson's disease in the same way that we've managed to eradicate polio. You can learn more about the Pacific Parkinson's Research Institute at pacificparkinsons.org. To learn more about the next Shake, 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 look for updates on the events page of parkinsons.bc.ca. And if you want to find out if you're a good candidate for one of Dr. Ferrer's studies, email us at parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca and then we can connect you directly. Coming up on the next episode of When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Why is your hand shaking, Daddy? Um, my dad couldn't stop shaking, and I wanted somebody normal to be my dad. They came home, and I said, so how did the doctor go? And my mom burst out crying. And so I just automatically started crying, and I was like, what's going on? Henry wanted to jump around and play, and, and there's some times where I just like, I just need to take a nap. Does he ask a lot of questions about it? Daddy, why do you have Parkinson's? They say, you know, they never considered that it was their dad with Parkinson's, it was just their dad. We can't pretend that this isn't anything anymore, because it is. Because of course you want to believe that your parents are healthy and aging well. It's a hard thing to see your parents get weak, you know? I love you, Daddy. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe to this podcast, and you can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. And while you're there, give the show a rating and a review. Feel free to comment. Yeah, and if you're on Android, you can't rate it, you can't review it, but what you can do is you can share it with your friends. Tell uh, people that you're listening. It's a simple way to help spread the word and raise awareness of Parkinson's disease. You can also engage with us on social media. It's at Parkinson's Pod at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or email Nikki and me at Parkinson's Parkinson's pod at curiouscast.ca. Keep positive. Keep exercising. And keep listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.